it wasn't my intention. I didn't set out to make a story about hope. I set out to make a story about something that was bothering me and, and confusing me, and I wanted to explore. And then I felt like at the end, it needed that. It really, it really needed that. I mean, it's in some ways, it's a joyful book because it shows the way that all of the little teeny people you see in this book, they're alive and they're doing stuff and they're makers and they're explorers and they're, there's children and families and adults doing the things that adults do. It's like, it's all of it. And I guess I, I wanted to hold all of that. And I think for a child, they need to have some sense of hope. Hey everyone, I'm Bianca Schultz from the Children's Book Review, and this is the Growing Readers Podcast. Today's guest is the master of wordless picture books, Caldecott honor-winning illustrator Aaron Becker. He's here to talk about his latest stunner of a book, The Tree and the River, a wordless wonder that will give you hope in this time of uncertain environmental upheaval. As you may well know, Aaron Becker is the best-selling author of the award-winning Journey trilogy, along with several other books for children, young and old. His love of travel led him to the city of Granada, Spain, where a rich history of layered civilizations inspired him to write The Tree and the River. To prepare for the story's illustrations, he first constructed a scale model of the book's rolling landscape, which he then slowly transformed with clay and wood over many months. When he's not home with his wife and two daughters, Aaron Becker can be found creating something new in his studio in Western Massachusetts. Before we branch out into our conversation over a book you'll be pining for, here's the synopsis for The Tree and the river. A spectacular time-lapse portrait of humankind and our impact on the natural world from a Caldecott honor-winning master of the wordless form. In an alternate past or possible future, a mighty tree stands on the banks of a winding river, bearing silent witness to the flow of time and change. A family farms the fertile valley. Soon, a village sprouts, and not long after, a town. Residents learn to harness the water, the wind, and the animals in order to survive and thrive. The growing population becomes ever more industrious and clever, bending nature itself to their will and their ambition, redirecting rivers, harvesting lumber, reshaping the land, even extending daylight itself. The Tree and the River is an epic time-lapse reimagining of human civilization from a master of the wordless form and a thought-provoking meditation on the relationship between two mighty forces, nature and humankind. Welcome. 
Well, hi, Erin. Welcome to the Growing Readers Podcast. I am so thrilled to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, since it is your first time on the show, I have a question that I like to ask all children's book creators, and that is just in an overall sense, what is it that drives you and guides you in creating books for children? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I wonder what kind of answers you get. (laughs) (laughs) Probably all over the map. I think uh, for me, it's um, like a curiosity around my own interests and like I, I I often do not start out projects thinking about what kind of book do I want to make for a child I'm more thinking like what's interesting to me right now and what do I want to explore what ideas or what's important um, and that's sort of my reference point and often editors or crit people in my crit groups or whatever will ask well what age did you imagine this story being for <laughs> I'm just like, uh, I don't know, I guess a 48-year-old. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I would say that's that's sort of where I start from. So what, what do you think it is that helps you to stay true to your vision versus creating for a specific age group or a marketplace? Oh, wow, that's a great question. I mean, part of that is just the dumb luck of having a my debut book being successful, which gave me the opportunity and privilege to chase whatever ideas came to me versus feeling like, uh, I gotta, how am I going to sell this to someone and how are they going to pick it up? So I think that's just like one of those things that I feel really fortunate about. I don't think that's the norm. I think often, I mean, before I did kids books, I worked in commercial illustration and I was constantly having to kind of consider who my audience was or what the art director wanted or guess what they were looking for. And man, is it such a dream to be able to like finish a book and start a new one where I'm like, okay, well, what's, where am I at now? And what is, what is the story that I feel like I need to get out of inside me? (laughs) On that note, let's dig into the tree and the river. What was your original vision or I guess, you know, excuse the pun, your seed of inspiration for this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was sort of, I don't know if you know the book Stone for Sasha, which is another wordless book that I did. It's about a girl who um, loses her dog and grieves through sort of this, um, well, I, the book explores history and and the way we're all sort of connected through time and that the, the way through as time progresses in in the in the universe it's sort of like at this point that everyone goes through and it might maybe that helps in grief understanding that it's something others have have dealt with and that whole idea came about from this trip that my family and I took where we lived in Spain for a year with our at that time 5-year-old daughter 4-year-old daughter and uh, we lived in gr- this city called Granada, which is like built upon uh, Roman ruins and then Catholic castles and and cathedrals. And then the Moors came through. And, and so it's got all these layers of time and history built into it. And that experience of seeing actual buildings that were built on foundations of other entire cultures really hit me deeply. 
so stone for sasha kind of came out of that awareness of time and and experience of time and i i think i just wasn't done with it and i wanted to do something maybe even more specific to that idea of what i experienced in granada and so the tree in the river which follows human history through like 500 years from the perspective of a tree and a river um does just that it kind of speaks to these these ideas that are kind of hard to explain with words but for somehow somehow the wordless format really uh does the trick yeah well as it is a wordless picture book will you talk us through finding specific storylines and details from spread to spread and building to building it would just be great for any listener that hasn't had the opportunity to have a sneak peek yet just mm. to sort of hear you talk through it and and how how to find the specific thread of sure. storyline sure sure i mean a lot of it is up to the reader to look through the details and find things that interest them i was very careful from spread to spread to make things followable um every single building like there's not a single building in these cities that you see in these like they're if you haven't seen the the book it's basically like a very highly detailed bird's eye view of a city and so there's at times you know when it gets to be a a giant city there's hundreds of buildings and like every single one was there for a purpose <laughs> if you can believe it and so like there's one uh, the very first building that you see being started is uh, is the most obvious. It's like you just see it as a timber frame construction where a family has a little outpost on in, in this air in this um, kind of forested area um, by a river and a tree. Uh, they're cutting down trees to for, for their lumber and they're starting to build this house, this farmhouse. And by the next page, the house has been finished, but there's also another family that's moved in across the river <clears throat> or across the way and a couple other buildings. like. And so this initial building actually lasts for a while. So let's see, the third spread, it's still there, but now it's, it's just one of many buildings inside of a walled city. And then the walled city expands and the river is moved by the people, but still that initial building is there. And, and like from this might be over the course of, 40, 50, 60 years. And so the building's getting older. The roofing has to be replaced. You know, some of the walls are redone, um, just like it is. And then suddenly, between like the fourth and fifth spread, there's been a, a conflict between these two developing cultures. And the building's gone. It's just totally evaporated. <laughs> so there's another building in the story where it starts out as part of the farm. It's on the river. It has a water wheel. And it becomes at some point a cafe, maybe. Um, and then by the time we're in the future city, it's a, a disco, like a glowing entry of a disco. So those were all things that I just thought about, like, what would this how would this building evolve over time and what would people use it for? What, what do you think will be the most surprising thing that that readers will notice? Oh, I can't give it away. <laughs> there is something, I'll just say, there is something on the very first spread of the book when it looks like a kind of undiscovered country, a place where no one has ever been before. There's a there's a clue like off in the distance, maybe hidden behind the jacket flap that might give you a sense that maybe this is not the history of our own civilization, but one that might come after ours. 
This book is really an exploration on civilization. And sometimes I feel a bit conflicted in the children's book world in, in the sense that when you're writing or creating a book, you know, and in this sense, it's wordless, but it's often said not to be preachy and and not to have sort of obvious messages. But it's hard to avoid at the end of a picture book that there isn't some kind of intention behind the storyline. Mm. And, and so I'm wondering in terms of you creating this story, did you have an underlying message that you were hoping would come across? Or, you know, obviously we want the reader to take away whatever is meaningful to them, and they will, and that is the beauty of a wordless picture book. But for you, the creator, like, is there an underlying theme, like a very specific one that you were intending to explore? Wow. Uh, uh... I have to say that I don't have one. <laughs> and and I don't know if that's like I, I don't think that's a flaw in this case. Like I think it can be. You have to have you have to kind of know what it is that you want to say. But I'll be honest, like this is a in some ways, this is like a, a climate change angst book for me. And how do you write a climate change angst book for a, a an audience of children or even adults and and leave with any sort of I don't. I I knew I needed to leave some sense of hope at the end, or at least of rebirth, which seemed really important. But I also felt like I think the openness of the theme and the openness of whatever message one might get out of the ending of the story is sort of part and parcel with how I feel personally. Kind of going back to your first question of like, where do my ideas? What you know? What am I? What am I going for when I make something? And it's like what. I'm, sort of wrestling with something with with the books that I make, like what what sort of idea. And I knew I wanted to show the rise and fall of a civilization. And I have mixed feelings about that. <laughs> like in some ways, I think our civilization does need to change in some major way for us to get through the next century of human existence on this planet. And so I kind of feel like things, maybe things do need to be torn down or or changed in some way that might be terrible and, and bring a lot of suffering in it, but, but it's, or to people and our civilizations. But at the same time, like, if you look long enough through human history, and if you look deeply enough, and you become less centered on your own experience of like what you think civilization means, that's already happened to many, many peoples throughout history. And I think that's what I was going for is let's let's think about that. And of course, it's a complicated idea and it's not necessarily full of joy and, and it's not uplifting, but it's also true. And it's happened and it is happening. And let's think about it. Let's be there for a little while in, in a, an approachable uh, approachable way. Yeah, and I think the key word that you said that I have taken away from from reading The Tree and the River is the word hope. And I I do feel as though it's so important to explore these sort of gloomy topics of, I guess, the negatives in society and the and what's happening with our environment. You know, it's it can be a scary topic, but I think the beauty of your book being wordless is that the reader can come to it and apply 
their own thinking to it. And then ultimately you provide a nugget of hope at the end. And I think that's what will leave everybody feeling inspired to make the change that feels meaningful to them. So I I think for me, the key word that you said that touched me as a reader of your book is the word hope. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think that is the message by the end. I would just say, I think in answering your question, I was thinking like, it wasn't necessarily what I knew was going to happen. It wasn't my intention. I didn't set out to make a story about hope. I, I set to make I set out to make a story about something that was bothering me and, and confusing me and I wanted to explore. And then I felt like at the end, it needed that. It really, it really needed that. I mean, it's in some ways, it's a joyful book because it shows the way that all of the little teeny people you see in this book, they're alive and they're doing stuff and they're makers and they're explorers and they're, there's children and families and adults doing the things that adults do. It's like, it's all of it. And I guess I, I wanted to hold all of that. And I think for a child, they need to have some sense of hope. And I'll, I'll say also the last image of the book, not to give it away, but it, it does show the way humans interact with nature in a, in a hopeful way, in a, in like by sort of a child touching a tree. And when I was in college, I had this sculpture professor who had us draw a tree every day of the semester, like in some new way, like approach this tree and draw it <laughs> in, a, in a journal. And we kept this tree journal the whole term. And as the term was ending, I had been drawing this tree that was outside of my window because I, I thought like, well, I need something that's relatively easy to get to and that I'm going to do as a practice that's not going to like walk halfway across campus to <laughs> find a tree. So I'd been looking at this tree from the vantage point of a, a distance and from a window. And like the last day I went up to the tree and I put my hand on this tree that I'd been paying so much attention to for you know, three or four months of drawing, drawing in detail. And it was a really powerful experience. And I, I have no doubt in my mind that that feeling of connection to nature uh, was, was what inspired the ending of the story. about the creation of your art. So will you share what the process looks like and and the mediums that you use? Oh, wow. Well, this one was totally strange for me because I normally, you know, I normally work in watercolor and pen and ink. And I knew that the drawings in this were going to be so complicated and that following buildings to buildings, like from from spread to spread and the way that this thing was going to grow, I I felt like I needed to build something and I wasn't really sure how, like as a reference or just as a process of understanding something in three dimensions and how it could change and how a river could bend and move. and, And so I actually built this gigantic diorama in my studio. It was like probably six or seven feet wide. (laughs) And like, I made like the landscape out of cardboard, layers of cardboard, and then I covered it in clay. And then I built little buildings out of clay and wood. And I started to put them on like one at a time. And I would take a photograph and light the landscape with the sun at one end. And then as the book goes on, it covers the course of a day. So it goes from like sunrise to sunset. 
And so I would move this light in the studio and add some buildings and take another picture. But this this took me like two months, <laughs> like building this thing, photographing it. And then all I had were a bunch of photos of this clay model, which like did not have the look of what I wanted. So then I took those photographs and I printed them out on paper really lightly so that I could draw over top of them and add details and add the people. And oh my gosh, it was like so many layers of, of detail. I I think I might've killed myself on this one. I wasn't happy with my first pass of drawing. Like it was too loose. It was nicely, nicely loose, but it didn't have the detail for a full book. So I ended up redrawing it again, like in in pencil. And then I had those pencil drawings and the photographs. And I was like, how do I put these together? And in the end, I used the computer to paint on top of the photographs. And then that looked kind of digital painty. And I wasn't happy with that. So then I took every image and painted a gouache, which is like watercolor, an opaque watercolor, a gouache painting of just things that I wanted texture for, like the grass or the stones on the wall or you know, the way the clouds were billowing. And then I could use that gouache in Photoshop, to sort of selectively paint details of, of handheld or hand handmade paint into the image. So a long, long answer to your question, because it was a long, long process. I don't even know how long it took me to do this book, but um, I think it was the only way I, mean, I, had, to, I had to do it. <laughs> I love that. I love that, like just long process, because the actual arc of the story, while you said it's, you know, a day, it's also 500 years. So it makes mm. sense that it should have taken that long <laughs> to explore it. And I was going to ask you, how long did it take you? But now yeah. I won't, because you just said it was mm. just a really long time. Yeah. So, so then my question will be then, what did you do with the model? Do you still have it? Mm. I had to move out of that studio like right around the time I was finishing and it was too big to move. I didn't have a place to store it. And also it had organically grown. So like it started out as that one little timber frame house model and then it became this huge city. Oh, and then at the <laughs> the city gets demolished at some point and I had to wreck the city. So actually like I think by the end of taking photographs it was just a messy muddy landscape with a couple of trees left in it. So it actually went through the same lifespan as the city you see in the book. Oh, that's great. Did your kids get to sort of enjoy the model at all? Were they fascinated I like, by it? <laughs> I had a plastic bag full of little house pieces. And my youngest daughter is just super into making stuff. And I think she, she wanted to make clay stuff one day and I had some leftover clay that I hadn't used, but then I also had these little teeny pieces of these buildings and she just went for it and like started cutting them up and making them into something else. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Since you're a master of wordless picture books, I'm curious whether you would identify with the word storyteller more so than the words author or writer. Yeah, I I don't really think of myself as an illustrator per se because I don't think I think like an illustrator. Like I a, like a really good illustrator can be given an idea by someone else and make it into something totally fresh and new. And my ideas sort of tend to start out as stories that I need to then figure out how to make visually, which is like what I just told you about. I didn't know I was going to make this. <laughs> I had the idea, but I didn't know I was going to make the pictures. So, I, yeah, I get 
it's it's more of like I I want to tell stories. I, that's a, such a good question um, because I also, of course, don't really think of myself as a writer as well. Well, then let's go with storytellers. So I as like a, it. Yeah, as a storyteller, do you consider yourself a reader, or do you prefer to get your fill of stories through other mediums such as movies? Hmm. I was not a reader when I was a child, and I'm not much of one as an adult. And it is not like um, it's a little hard because this the world we have built is a verbal one, at least in terms of academics and what uh, adults want children to be able to do. It's like very important to there's a lot of stress on being a reader. And it actually is very difficult for me to read. I'm not uh, dyslexic, but my brain just can't keep track of verbal information for very long. Like I remember in college taking economics and it was like a beginner economics class. And I would just read these paragraphs over and over again. I mean, it didn't interest me. So that was one part of it, but certainly just like being able to file words away and, and follow them from sentence to sentence is something I really have struggled with in my life. It doesn't surprise me that I find it easier to tell stories visually at all. Before we had our chat today, we exchanged written words, and uh, you you know you used the the word of visual learners and and mm. the, how the wordless picture book is really such a great platform for the visual learner, and it would make sense that I'm assuming you would be a visual learner too, and and that you're a visual storyteller. So that's probably why your story stories work so well in the wordless format. I think so. And and I do think the kids out there that are struggling to read or just aren't drawn to books in general, there's so many amazing books out there that are light on words or that can even be interpreted like, you know, graphic novels are pretty easy to understand the plot and story without reading the dialogue. And uh, my youngest daughter who can't read yet is just so into them, even graphic novels for older kids. That I, I think it's a really great time to be a kid who's a reluctant reader <laughs> because there's so much good stuff out there that doesn't require being able to grasp language. I recently had a triple guest show uh, with children's book creators, Julie Fogliano, Molly Idol, and Juana Martinez-Neal, and they were oh, wow. on the show yeah. to talk about their picture book, I Don't Care. Mm -hmm. And we actually touched on the intersection of motherhood and work, but since <laughs> you're also a parent... Do you yeah. mind if I ask you how you find the balance between family and your creative pursuits? Oh, man, it is so hard. It's the hardest thing to be an active parent, an engaged parent, and an engaged artist or writer or anybody, teacher, whatever you do. I, don't, I always, like during the pandemic, I just thought of single parents and how the heck... You know, like we, my wife and I tag, tag team through everything and we, we both work and we both manage kids who are in total. We have a middle schooler and a kindergartner. We have so many, you know, advantages. We have cars. We don't have to take public transportation. We both have jobs. We're not, you know, stressed out financially. Um, but boy, it's just like, I find that all I want to do, all I've ever wanted to do is stuff. And if I had like when I have free time or when I, you know, would want to take a break from or take a vacation or take a holiday, all I want to do is is work. <laughs> it's like, that's what I love doing. I just can't get enough of it. And so it's a real it's something I've had to 
work on, especially once we had a second kid where it wasn't quite so easy to just disappear, like it had to be there. I, I just find it a constant growing experience of like, okay, at the end of the day, one wants to like engage with and, and connect to one's own kids. And I mean, if you've read Journey, that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And my own childhood was one where my parents were were not all the time. I mean, maybe all kids feel that way, but certainly I wanted someone to play with. And um, I try and do that with my own kids. My God, I don't know if you're... <laughs> If your kids of the right age to watch Bluey these days, do you know what Bluey yes. is? Yes. Uh, well, I'm Australian, so oh, yes. Right. Oh, I, my God. I, I yeah. do love a little oh, Bluey. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. So you know Bluey better than most. And honestly, like, there are times I have to ban in our house because our kids think that their parents are just available 24-7 yes. to be there entertaining playmates. Um, but I think that's the kind of the model I'm going, I'm aiming for in an ideal world is to be like bandit and, and his kids like playful and, and giving them that kind of magical childhood. I don't know to what end, I mean, they're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I want to share a, a meme that I just saw. It was probably on Facebook or it could have been Instagram, but it was a, it was a funny Bluey meme. And then, and then the uh -huh. caption said, <laughs> Bluey might be the best program out there, uh, you know, showing parent-child relationships. But the only thing that would make it better is if Bandit would just lose it just once. If Bandit could just lose it. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally right like there's times when he's like they're like dad can we play blah blah and he's like only we can i'll play a game with you if it involves me laying down on the couch <laughs> yeah. so there is a little admitting of that on that show but um yeah i mean yeah. i think gender roles being what they are like I think women just have a harder time carving that out, even with someone like myself who tries to be an engaged dad and is aware of those issues. It's like there's a lot there. And I, I'd be curious to hear their conversation. I personally just find it totally exhausting. And yet, like, of course, it's why I feel like I'm here on the planet is to is to launch them into a successful life. Well, Aaron, I would love to just close out with a giant thank you to you for creating all of your picture books. And since we were talking specifically about the tree and the river, I just want to point out like how to me, it really manages to cover the gloomy topics of societal and environmental upheaval and our impact that we can have on the natural world. But like I said before, I love that it left readers with hope and hopefully some ambition to do better. So thank you for creating that book. I think it, it's really needed right now. And then I just want to thank you for your time and for being here on the show today because it's been an absolute pleasure. You're so welcome. And thank you so much for, for saying all of that. Thank you so much for joining us on this quest for growing readers. Be sure to check out our show notes. You'll find links to order a copy of Aaron Becker's wordless picture book, The Tree and the River. If you like this show, remember you can hear it on Apple Podcasts, Chromecast, Spotify, or anywhere else you enjoy listening. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes as soon as they launch. If you're enjoying our book chats, please leave us a review. And while you're at it, tell a friend to come and have a listen. The Growing Readers Podcast is a production of the Children's Book Review. To discover more fantastic books, 
just like the tree and the river, I hope you'll visit us at thechildrensbookreview.com.